Our scripture reading this morning comes from Acts 20, uh, verses 17 through 35, I believe. 17 through 35. Uh, It's page 1729 in the Pew Bibles. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task that Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock, all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I have, stopped, I have never stopped warning each of you night and, night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. This is word of the Lord. There is a little-known indie movie called Whiplash. Uh, It follows a college jazz drummer and his abusive college professor who pushes him to his limits. As the movie focuses on the drummer, it gives the impression that drumming is the single most important thing in jazz. However, my own experience as a high school jazz drummer was not at all like what you see in the movie. I can tell you that I was the least important piece in that jazz band. As long as I kept the beat steady and simple, the teacher just did not care. He did care, however, about other parts. So I often spent a lot of time in that class just listening to my classmates working with the teacher to perfect their craft. I listened to a lot of their playing. That's what I'm trying to say. And in those moments, it often struck me how odd the sound was when a single instrument 
was playing without the rest of the band. It was hard to imagine how all these different individual parts would come together and create this harmonious music that we call jazz. But if you've been part of any music ensemble, like uh, orchestra or marching band or even the choir, you know that those diverse sounds do come together and make something breathtaking. I mean, that is the magic of music, right? It's mind-blowing, then, to think that there was a composer who carefully mapped it all out. And this brings us to the word omnibus, which you find in the sermon title. You might have heard of omnibus movies. Think of movies like Love Actually, which is one of my favorite holiday movies, um, or Babel, where there are many stories seemingly disconnected, but they all intertwine and come together in the end to tell a beautiful story. I know that no analogy is perfect, but however, this morning I want us to think about God as this omnibus force, bringing different parts together to create something beautiful like a jazz composer. Keep that in mind as we delve into our reading this morning. Last week, we looked um, at Acts 19, where Paul arrived in Ephesus. That arrival turned into his longest ministry in a single location. Then comes a pivotal moment in Acts 19.21 where Paul decides to go to Jerusalem. The Greek text there uh, makes it clear that he's not acting on his own, but he's following the Spirit's guidance. Acts 20.22, which we read this morning, also echoes that and tells us that Paul was compelled by the Spirit Even though Paul knows that only prison and hardships await him on this journey, he has no choice but to go to Jerusalem because of the strong conviction of the Spirit. So he begins his journey. After visiting churches in Macedonia and Achaia, he finally makes his way to Miletus. It's only a two- or three-day journey to Ephesus from the city, but because he was in such a hurry, he calls the elders, call the leaders from Ephesus to Miletus so that he can bid his farewell. And that's the speech that we read this morning. The speech is interesting in so many ways. It is the only speech, only, only speech that Paul gives in the book of Acts that was addressed to all Christian audience. And in the speech, we hear echoes of Paul's letters, don't we? And we also hear echoes of other farewell speeches that we find in the Old Testament. It is an interesting speech. Another interesting thing that I'm sure you have noticed is that Paul sounds very defensive here. He emphatically asserts that he did everything within his power to preach and teach the gospel to everybody in Ephesus. He anticipates that the gospel will be distorted and disciples will be misled. But when that happens, I am innocent of any blood, he says. It is a familiar defense mechanism, isn't it? A defense mechanism that we often use to protect ourselves, but without much merit. For example, uh, recently, my indoor soccer team played at Brookfield Soccer Complex and we lost 10 to 2. I know. But after the game, 
I convinced myself, and I was telling myself, I was reassuring myself that I did everything that I could. I even scored one of their goals. Granted, it was an own goal, right? It, their shot deflected off me and went in. But it was my own goal. I get the credit. As silly and trivial as, as it may seem, it underscores a deeper truth. Our tendency to defend ourselves stems from recognizing that in every area of our life, we carry a weight, a certain weight of responsibility. That includes relationships, uh, work, school, and even a soccer game. And that recognition often leads us to fear and doubt, prompting us to ask if we have done enough. And as Christians, we have this added weight. We recognize the weight of our divine calling to be witnesses for the king. It is a privilege, but its weight feels heavy. Whether we are trying to raise our children in the faith, disciple somebody, evangelize our neighbors, or lead a ministry, we sometimes think about whether or not our efforts are enough. The fear of things going horribly wrong, or the fear of somebody being misled looms large. And in response to this fear, we convince ourselves that we have done everything within our power. We have taught them, we have warned them, cautioned them, reminded them. If and when things go terribly wrong, if and when somebody goes astray, then it's on them. It's not our fault. We are innocent of any blood. And this fear finds its roots in our lived experiences. I mean, it's, we have seen Christian communities fracture. We have seen our friends and loved ones abandon their faith. The memory of witnessing these moments still pains us, and the memory of feeling powerlessness in those moments still leaves us like a deer in the headlights. These experiences fuel our fear and prompt us to resort to this self-protective defense mechanism. Now, if we are reading, reading Paul's speech through the lens of this fear with all of our lived experiences, of course we are going to assume that Paul is being defensive here. We may even try to validate our assumption by mentioning what eventually happened to the church in Ephesus. Sometime after Paul left um, the church, Timothy, young Timothy was installed as the pastor there. But based on what we read in Paul's letters to Timothy, we know that things ended up going terribly wrong in that church. And many people were misled in that, or from that church. But the, still, but the question still remains. Is Paul actually being defensive here? Or are we simply misreading the text because of our own fear? Is our reading clouded by our own fear? If indeed we've misinterpreted Paul's speech here, if Paul is not being defensive, then what is the essence of this speech? So let's do that. Let's consider those questions. And let's start with the first question. Is Paul being defensive? The part where Paul sounds most defensive is verse 26, where he uh, declares his innocence, right? 
What is intriguing about that verse is what follows after. The, the logical progression that follows that de- declaration. He first highlights that during his three-year service in Ephesus, he never stopped preaching the gospel or teaching the will of God, the entirety of God's will. He did it so much that he doesn't feel the need to summarize his teaching or give his bullet points. I mean, it's, this is Paul. He's wordy, but he doesn't do that here because he feels confident that these leaders are well-versed in the gospel and God's will. So he simply encourages them to safeguard themselves and fellow Christians, and he refers them as the church of God, which God purchased with his blood. It's crucial that we grasp the full depth of Paul's rationale here. He's creating a full circle, isn't he? He's innocent of any blood because they are the church that God purchased with his own blood. His claim of innocence here isn't self-serving. It's rooted in the profound understanding that this community in Ephesus does not belong to Paul. This community does not belong to Paul. Despite his extensive and emotionally invested ministry in Ephesus, this church is not Paul's, it is God's. In other words, Paul has no reason to be defensive because it's not about what he has or has not done in Ephesus. What we hear in Paul's speech is not a defense mechanism, but pure and utter confidence. He is confident in the ministry that he led in Ephesus. His teaching, his evangelism, discipleship, pastoral care, and much more. There is no fear in Paul since Paul knows that he has done his best and he has given his all. And he doesn't have to worry about whether or not his all would prove to be adequate. Because at the end of the day, ultimately, that is not, his, his, that's not dependent on him or his ministry. Instead, in verse 32, Paul entrusts this church to God and the word of his grace, placing it under God's care because at the end of the day, it's in God's hands. By the way, that phrase, it's in God's hands, I used to have a real beef with that phrase. My, my pastoral care professor once called it the most comforting phrase that a pastor can say to anybody, especially to, to those who are grieving. And I just remember, that, is, that can't be it. They need an answer. Right? I, I, it seemed like such a cop-out answer. But with time, and I would like to think with some maturity, I've come around to see it as the ultimate truth. It is not an evasive answer, but a profound source of comfort. Look at what it does. That phrase shifts our focus from what we have done or what we not have done or what we know or what we don't know to what God has promised to do. The truth of the matter is, we don't have all the answers to all the questions we face in life. We don't know, frankly, what will happen to our children 
our friends or our loved ones or even this, to this community. So we constantly question whether or not our work has been adequate enough. We question whether we have evangelized enough, discipled enough, prayed enough. But regardless of what we have or have not done, nothing can thwart the will of God. And since our God is a good God, His will will always yield good things. That doesn't, however, mean that there will be there will not be any hardship in our lives. I mean, that's clear from Paul's life and what ended up happening in the church in Ephesus. But as Paul famously says in Romans, even in those bad moments, God would work for the good of the church that he bought with his own blood. And it's such a comfort to know that Everything is in God's good hands. And Paul here is speaking from that perspective. That in the end, what would sustain the Ephesian church is not his ministry. If the church were to survive the savage wolves and their attacks, as he says in verse 29, it is because of the unwavering faithfulness of God. And that's where his confidence stems from. That the fact that the church belongs to his faithful God. So with that confidence, Paul in verse 32 commits the church and its leaders to God, his faithful God, and the word of his grace. And the Ephesian church in history becomes a testament to God's sustaining grace. You know, despite enemies distorting the truth in that church and leading many people astray, the church thrived and became, eventually became a ep- Christian epicenter in the Roman Empire. This became the home for the Apostle John, where he would live the rest of his life and fulfill what God or what Jesus asked him, asked him to do on the cross. He took care of his mother Mary in Ephesus. God would always be faithful and sustain his church. At the same time, God will always ask or God would always show his faithfulness through his faithful people. It is vital to navigate this delicate balance between trusting God's sovereignty, faithfulness, and goodness and recognizing our roles, our own roles as witnesses for the king. Even in this speech about God's divine ownership of the Ephesian church, Paul constantly reminds the leaders of their divine calling to keep watch, right? To, to be shepherds and to be on their guard because God calls his people to faithful service to him and his church. So when we revisit Paul's speech here, not through the lens, not through the old lens of fearing our personal responsibilities, but through the new lens of God's grace and faithfulness, we get a different picture of this speech. We begin to see why Paul spends so much time talking about what he did and how he did them in Ephesus. What we might have assumed as Paul's defensiveness is actually Paul trying to give his ministry, offer his ministry as an example 
of faithful service that God asks of us. And this service is modeled after Jesus himself. Whether his service was good enough or not, he doesn't care about that thing. He only cares that he did everything that he, within his power, everything within his power to serve God and his people. He even supplied his own needs and the needs of his companions so that the resources that would otherwise go to him and his companions would go to the weak and help them. And as for the rest that falls out of his power, he simply entrusts them to God and the word of his grace because they are all in God's good hands. I never fully understood jazz. I'm just pretentious enough to say that I like jazz. I never quite understood how these different parts come together to create this chaotic yet beautiful sound that we call jazz. But, the end, but the, at the end of the day, I, I don't need to understand any of that. Because as a, simply a drummer, the best thing I can do is give my all. Keep the beat simple and steady. Trusting that the omnibus force, the composer, have mapped it, has mapped it all out. And when everyone in the band does the same thing, when everyone in the band gives their best... You know what happens. Those individual sounds, as odd and disconnected they may seem, come together and create something breathtaking. And isn't that what Paul is saying here? He's trusting that God is the omnibus force, like a jazz composer capable of weaving together the seemingly disconnected individual parts and create something breathtaking. And with that trust and confidence, he simply gives his all to finish the race and complete the task that God has given him. And he asked the leaders and all of us to do the same. Join the band and play our parts. The church the whole church stands as a testament to this divine orchestration. Through centuries, it has weathered many storms of persecution, heresies, and threats by, the, by only the sustaining grace of God. This grace was made tangible through the faith people, faithful people like the people in Ephesus. Not long after Paul's speech that we read, the Ephesian church began discipling, and among them were two young believers named Ignatius and Polycarp. When, Paul, when the apostle John arrived in Ephesus, he took them under his wings and he taught them as his own students. Both of them became influential bishops in, both, uh, in Antioch and Smyrna, and both of them gave up their lives to defend the faith. But before they died, they had, their, had the students of their own. And Polycarp had a student named Irenaeus. Irenaeus defended Jesus' incarnation against heresies during his lifetime. 
Again, Irenaeus has students of his own, and one of them was named Hippolytus. I think that's how you pronounce his name. That's a Greek name. Um, and he was the early and the def- early defender of the doctrine of Trinity when much of the church was being misled by heresies and modalism. All of these people were called to faithful service. And they answered. Even though they didn't understand how their individual parts would all fit into this harmonious music, they didn't understand how they would be part of God's sustaining grace for his church. They simply answered. And these ripple effects have continued all the way down to us. I mean, take a moment and ask yourself, who discipled you? And who discipled them? None of these people had fully comprehended how God would use their faithful service to sustain the church and disciple you and me. Yet, God, the omnibus force, understood. He has beautifully interwoven all these individual parts, creating a beautiful and continuous music all the way down to our generation. Now, consider the part that, is, that God is calling you to play in his band, in his symphony. We each have an opportunity to play our unique part in God's divine plan, in, in his omnibus music. And our faithful service will ripple down to the next generations. God invites us to give our best to him and to his church. Yet he doesn't demand, he doesn't demand flawless perfection. What is after is our faithfulness. Our task is to serve God and in his church wholeheartedly within our capabilities. The rest, things beyond our control, are in God's hands. When we look at our task from that perspective, the yoke of being witnesses for the king feels easy, doesn't it? Its burden seems light. And this understanding becomes the ultimate source of our confidence. The confidence that will fuel us to just dive in and partake in this beautiful, harmonious music of God. So let's ask ourselves, what is God showing us? What is God calling us to play? And let's join in his music. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the reminder of your sovereignty and faithfulness. We thank you for the power that weaves our lives together to make a beautiful symphony. The symphony that glorifies you. The symphony that stands as a testament to your grace and your power and your goodness. Grant us now the wisdom to see our role in your divine plan. Also grant us the strength to embrace embrace our roles as your faithful witnesses. Help us to serve you and your church with wholehearted dedication, offering our best within our capabilities. 
and by your spirit continue to shape us and shape our lives. Allow us to walk confidently in your will and bless us with the assurance that what we entrust to you is in your careful and good hands. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.